What the hell's he doing? Babe, let me see that flower in your left hand. No, not that one. Your other left hand. Yeah, that's... that's what? Hey, 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 look. Uh, you know, we're not running a flower shop here, okay? We're selling the girl. So stop futzing around with the props and the pillars and the flowers and just shoot the girl, okay? Okay, now, let's, let's go for that leg thing here. Let's, uh... Recline a little, yeah. I see you open up them legs a little bit. That's right. Now give me a little wider on that. That's it. Now give me a little wider, a little wider. Just another little touch wider. <laughs> no, maybe not quite that wide. Wait, 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 wait. No, that. Get back to that. That's exactly what we want. Hey. Okay, that's perfect. Leave it right there. That's what you want. Now, a woman's vagina has as much personality as her face. But you can't show the genitalia. Why not? Well, Larry, Rudy's right. You can't show legally. You can't hey, show the vagina. Shut up, Jimmy. Rudy, are you a religious man? Yeah. Okay, you believe God created man? Yeah. God created woman? Yeah. But then surely the same God created her vagina. And who are you to defy God? Just shoot it. web and this is my co-host mike and we start a new trilogy this month with the 1996 smash hit the people versus larry <laughs> flint boy this is the first time that i watched this film so uh, maybe my views on it are not going to be as refined uh, I was a huge Ed Norton fan because once you get it, when you first get into cinema, I feel like once you get introduced to something like Fight Club or American History X, you immediately want to go through anything that Ed Norton is in because he's just so captivating. And the more you watch, I think the less. <laughs> the more... Oh wow! Not a fan of the score, huh? That was at the jumping off point. <laughs> I think it might have been Death to Smoochie, but in retrospect, it's a pretty good film. I actually enjoy that one more. I was like, I, I don't believe that at all. As often as you bring up Death to Smoochie, it's like a I modern do. classic for you. <laughs> I do bring, you know, I bring it up in a negative way, and then I immediately backtrack. <laughs> The more I watch Ed Norton, the more I see, like, wow, he's not. there's not as much range there as I was hoping for. Anyhow, this is one of his early performances, and he's quite good in it. But ultimately, for me, this film is quite ugly, and it's quite unpleasant. <laughs> and those aren't necessarily bad things, because they're... Welcome to a new month on Trilogy and Theory. <laughs> <laughs> ugly and unpleasant. <laughs> but it's not a bad thing. Because the main character is very sleazy and grimy, and, and he's not shy about being those things. He, he has no false notions about what he does and how he makes his living. So 
it kind of works. Uh, was this your first time watching this film? Oh no, I well, I was a teenager when this came out, but probably <laughs> too young to appreciate the legacy of Larry Flint. Because for me, Larry Flint only existed as uh, that's a character Woody Harrelson is playing at that time. Like I, as as a movie kid, uh, it's interesting you you brought up with a certain degree of sarcasm. Uh, and kicking dirt on this poor man that this was not a financial success because <laughs> I actually was trying to check you. I'm like, was it not? I thought it was a hit. Now look, I'm like, no, this was not a hit at all. But in my mind, uh, it was much discussed and talked about. So if you were into movies and even like, you know, critically, while it was well received, it's not like it was this great awards contender. It was only nominated for, for two uh, Academy Awards with Harrelson and uh, Milos uh, Foreman. I guess he stole someone's spot. He was one of those, the, the, when there used to be five movies, and then there would be only four of the directors would make the cut representing their best picture film. So he was one. <laughs> he, he got to be the guy that uh, put his thumb down on someone. I don't know who that was for the 69th Academy Awards. But uh, no, I had seen this a few times. I think. Certainly something like Boogie Nights is more appealing to, um, in particular, a teenager, uh, especially if you, you cut it off before the 80s. <laughs> Let's say you only watch half of Boogie Nights. That's a lot of fun. It is. <laughs> you just, <laughs> Certainly. Uh, you, don't attend to, you don't attend that New Year's party. Uh, you're pretty good with how things, I guess, turn out. Uh, I agree with you. It's a, it's a good point that this film, even as a, a horny teenager, uh, I was not watching The People versus Larry Flint for... Uh, any titillating content, really, because, um, not to disparage uh, Miss Courtney Love here, but, you know, she's she's a lot anyway with her normal persona, and here it's amped up, I guess, the trashiness level, which I, I do appreciate because it's, as you said, the Larry Flint character, at least one we see on film and probably true to life, you know, when they're doing a photo shoot where the photographer is having... A young lady spread her legs, and then he was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! What do you think we're doing here? Now you can't go that far." <laughs> and Larry Flint's, I guess, the most obvious question is, "Why not? What, what exactly are we talking about here? What are we, what are we really doing here, sir?" And he, you know, he's just upfront about what he's selling uh, and making no bones about it. I will admit, if there is a Boogie Nights, the '80s sequence here, it has to be when. Mr. Flint finds religion. That's a pretty big buzzkill section of the movie. Incredibly. Uh, yeah. Which it had to be for everyone else involved with him, too. Like, God, oh, Jesus. Mixing porn and religion <laughs> together. Horrible. Like, no thanks. <laughs> a horrible idea. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Courtney Love because, boy, when I mention ugly and unpleasant, like, she kind of... Not not like a physical way. Not in a physical way ugly. I'm just... I just bragged on you, Webb. I was I was on uh, Sober Cinema, another show I do, and I said, I compliment you. I said, you're one of the nicest people I know, and especially in podcasting, where everyone attempts to be Howard Stern and try to get in their jabs. I was like, you know, Webb, when he called <laughs> Glenn Close a handsome woman on our Fatal Attraction episode, <laughs> I was floored at how cruel it was because it came out of nowhere. And now I feel like we're <laughs> we're dipping our toes back into that, that jacuzzi here, back into those waters. No, 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 no. I, I totally mean on like kind of a, I guess a personality level, Courtney Love's character, it, like she personifies that character so well in terms of the ugliness and the un unpleasantness as I 
going back to those two words, I think they really, they really do sum up this film for me in almost She's every She's abrasive. Character. She's harsh. Yeah. And it, to the point where I really didn't like that character. And th- I know that that's the point. But – and – that's what makes it such a good performance. It's too often we see something like Keith Ledger's Joker, where it's it's like a villain, but everybody's cheering for the fucking villain, and you're on their hmm, side. I'd like to dress up for him. Exactly. Halloween. That's what exactly. everyone's thinking. <laughs> exactly. And so you're on their side in a weird way. Another aspect of this film that really struck me is how it kind of avoids the pitfalls of what a biopic normally is. With the biopic, you've got the humble beginnings normally, then you've got the rise, the entertainment, and then kind of the decline. And then depending on who the biopic is about, you might have a resurgence or a grand climax in which it's a complete, complete chaos. And this film... The character is living his life in such a bizarre way that there's no structure there. So watching it is a really jarring experience. Uh, There's always something out to get him or something out to stop his magazine or something happening with his friends or with his wife. So it really doesn't feel like a normal biopic. Do you feel like it goes by the numbers? The, um... Drug addiction years, I guess. Ziggs, uh, where I guess I would have expected it to Zach. Like they, they have this uh, moment uh, visually in the film where uh, there's a <laughs> literal mechanism that he locks himself away from the world. Like it, I mean, it's it made me think: was that real? Did he actually like <laughs> have his bedroom like he's a bank vault? <laughs> like that he's sealed off? Um, but that's the the boogie nights. You know, the '80s sort of. Uh, uh, jump cut moment uh, sort of where we're going to have a passage of time and it is something that did stick with me that when he has this surgery uh, that removes his his pain that he has this very black and white uh, when he comes out of that surgery and I don't know how real this is or maybe you know maybe in real life it was a slower slower realization recovery period but he's like in the film it's immediate so as he wakes up post-surgery he's like I don't feel pain anymore and so when he's offered painkillers to, to abuse in some fashion, he's like, why would I do that? I don't have pain. That's the only reason I was doing it. And that was, the, I'm like, you're never going to see that in Requiem for a Dream. I was just bored. I'm not bored anymore. So I don't need drugs. Like that's, that's not happening. And that's obviously simplifying uh, people's addiction. So I don't know if that's true to life. I will say that from my, on a much smaller scale, I remember, Uh, My granny was, I mean, we're talking like, much like, I guess, Larry Flint uh, being like participating in moonshining when he was like a kid. My granny was one of those of that generation that started smoking when she was like 12 and like smoked into her like senior years and then got really sick. And when she recovered, she was like, no, I don't feel like it like that. Whatever. She was like, I don't want. Like she got so sick and it wasn't related to her nicotine addiction, but she just went without it for long enough that when she came out, she's like, why would I start that up again? She's like, it was like a terrible like curse to have that addiction my whole life. And I'm like thankful I don't feel the need for it. And so I've, I've seen that, but I probably think this is uh, an extreme version of it because the tropiness in this film probably unfortunately does fall in Courtney love. Like her, her arc is that, to rise and then like 
tragic fall that you've seen in I don't know how many sort of VH1 like behind the music type things. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that's the stuff that it doesn't age as well for me. Like it, it's interesting you started this with Edward Norton because I think he's he's part of the reason that it feels a little bit more offbeat than most biopics because his his lawyer character doesn't give a very rousing speech. Like, and that's part of the Edward Norton persona. I think that's why he broke out in those mid nineties was he, he just seemed interesting. Like the, the, the way he played a role and you're accusing him of playing it the same every time <laughs> once you got used to the Nortonisms, I guess. But you know, his Supreme court speech seems very sort of grounded and personable. It doesn't seem grandiose the way he's talking in this, this setting, this historic setting. And even the, the climax, I guess, if you have one, here is just a uh, a cell phone call to Larry, where he's like, "Yeah, we we won. They 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 believed us." And then he just hangs up, and it's just him alone on the steps. It's 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 a weird uh, kind of like victory in that regard. Actually, I'm glad you mentioned that scene. That's my favorite scene in the entire film, actually, and I think that is the climax and the way that he delivers it. And I think the dialogue is like verbatim what was actually said in the closing arguments. Uh, in the real trial, and the way he delivers it, absolutely brilliant. And it doesn't need to be showy, and it doesn't need to be something straight out of, like, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, because I think the topic at hand is just so important and meaningful, at least for me. I guess if you're not interested in First Amendment rights, then <laughs> I guess you're not as going to be invested. I feel like everyone is now, but uh, most are, well... I would say the ones that are screaming about it are, are bad actors who <laughs> have said some pretty horrific things, usually threatening things to other people online, and then uh, try to cape with that. They can get away with anything. Do you think that maybe it's so, um, not downbeat, but strangely downbeat in victory? Because even that phone call, Woody Harrelson's like, yeah, was he say like thank you, Alan, and then just hangs up the phone? Like that's it. Like it's just like I mean, he smiles, he sort of smirks, and then he says something, you know, uh, to his now past wife. Like you know, we we did it, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, he's not. He's he spent most of the film being bombastic and a troll. And I guess the film and the filmmakers probably you know it just doesn't seem fitting. Like, do we turn it up to 11? Like, he's, he's like, trolled the courts. And so, like, when he wins, uh, there's a certain decency that he has in victory that he never he never had in defeat. He's definitely a sore loser for most of the runtime of the film. <laughs> <laughs> See, that is, that is really character building for me in that moment because it all of a sudden it makes sense. And, and just like the sequence after the surgery where he's like, I don't need it anymore. That was an incredibly strong moment for that character and it makes you look at him in a very different light and same thing with kind of the ending because he he knows that he's right the whole time since the very first court trial that he had to be a part of he knew that he was right and so when someone finally tells him at the end like yeah you won he's like well of course i did this was always what was supposed to happen. So I kind of like that. I, yeah, if you turn it up to, I guess, 12 <laughs> by the end, it really doesn't make sense. And you really, it's a, that would have been a very jarring ending. He's already worn the American flag as a diaper in yeah. one court sequence. So what, <laughs> where do you go from, from there? 
do you think this still like plays the same in 2021? Cause you know, I, I kind of alluded to that the, you know, the first amendment is now the defense of all manner of, um, well, I mean, at times criminal acts, as we saw at, at the Capitol, somehow that <laughs> smearing feces on the wall of the Capitol is like, no, no, I'm just exercising my free speech here. And it is something that I think probably used to be seen as a defense for extremely progressive or liberal thought, sort of forcing uh, conservative-minded souls to be more accepting of things like Hustler, but <laughs> I feel like we're in some sort of uh, Black Mirror uh, episode now where we're meant to be accepting of uh, conspiracy theories about you know 5G uh, making us all zombies. And that <laughs> now we have to put up with complete nonsense. I, I Keep in mind, I realize that 30 seconds ago I talked about Larry Flint wearing the American flag as a diaper to courtroom, so I understand <laughs> there are different levels of nonsense, but what he was fighting for was a an actual thing, which is this should be able to be sold to adults. What is the difference between me and Playboy? What are, what are the the levels of as you know? I, I don't know. Maybe maybe there are a bunch of webs out there that <laughs> held up Hustler in the seventies and said, "Now this is dirty. This is really dirty." <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to paint you as a conservative. You're an old-fashioned conservative. No, you know, not a conspiracy, not conservative. <laughs> no, certainly not. You know what's funny is, like, as I get older, I do find myself to be a little more conservative about certain things. But it's odd. Even though I might feel more conservative about certain topics, I don't go full force where I'm like, oh, well, this was right all along, and everyone else who thinks otherwise is wrong. <laughs> Like, I, I <laughs> it, it's it's a weird thing. I'm like, should I be that way? Because that's the norm. Now, You ha everything is about picking sides. Like, if you're not on the right side, then you're against them completely. And it's, it's weird. But for the most part, I have a very, like, live and let live attitude towards most things. So you're libertarian, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, boy, where would I put myself... I see. I would still say I'm like mostly progressive for the past uh, this past election, like in the primaries, like I voted for Bernie. Like, I don't agree with all of his policies, but I'm like, well, this is a lot. A lot of the policies like these would be really good for a lot of other people, even though they're they don't really apply to me. This might help our country more. And so that's it's the thought process I have. You feel that way because I, I really disagree with that viewpoint. Like I think <laughs> the country would be a lot better. And I say this in red state Kentucky because what absolutely fucking kills me is that I am around so many folks who are um, economically challenged would be the – I guess the – oh, I don't know if Twitter would deem that the appropriate way to say it. But a lot of poor folks – who vote against their own self-interest. Like I'm fine. I'm actually fine with a selfish vote. If you're knowledgeable about that selfish vote. And I don't understand why and how we've allowed, well, I guess it's through uh media manipulation. We've allowed the extremely wealthy. Somehow they always get to vote selfishly for their own interests, yeah. but they've convinced a lot of uh, the, you know, middle-class lower middle-class or just extremely poor that no, you should vote on these hot button social issues instead and i I'm, i would be totally fine if people actually looked at the figures and said no this is what would help me because i think 
we would have very different outcomes in this country if people actually did that. Oh, certainly. It, it's <sighs> politicians tend to find one or two hot button topics that align with what their secret agenda is, and that's what much they're like push. this movie. Yeah, but really. What? <laughs> who? Who really cares? Like, what? <laughs> why was this such a big deal? And the interesting part about the movie is the fact that. Larry Flint did, and we were talking about someone who, you know, died very recently. We'd already selected this film, or you did. You you picked this one out to, to lead off this next month before he had passed. Um, so I, I don't know what that makes you, Webb, that you've <laughs> pointed your podcast finger at a man <laughs> and said, you die next. But, <laughs> but we have to, I mean, you know, acknowledge that his legacy was made by stirring the pot here. I mean, he has a moment where on the stand, at least in the film version, uh, he's just point blank asked like, you know, what, what did he get out of uh, instigating this, this feud with Jerry Falwell, which was obviously satire, but he goes a step further on the stand and is like, yep, I want to take everything away from him. I want to ruin this. There is uh, one thing also that really stuck out to me and something that I've been harping about constantly for, for some time now, and that's the differences between sex and violence and the, the attitudes, the attitudes towards sex and violence in America versus the attitudes in any other kind of developed country, uh, because it is totally okay for little kids to play you know, the latest uh, uh, first-person shooter games, and nobody bats an eye. They can play Mortal Kombat. Have you seen the recent Mortal Kombat games? They are incredibly violent. So much so... Like, I grew up with Mortal Kombat, and, and, you know, everything was violent in a cartoony way. Now it's actually kind of gross. And that's all okay, apparently, but we can't show... A man's penis in a movie, and, and and as soon as you do something like that, the movie's rated triple X. No matter what came before the scene and what comes after the scene, so it's very frustrating. Um, and I, I think that really speaks to some of the more violent crime and some of the more violent actions that occur in this country uh, versus somewhere like England, where. The officers over there have billy clubs, and they don't—they're not armed with the kind of firepower that regular citizens have uh, in this country. So I, I found that incredibly fascinating—the the sequence where uh, Mr. Flint is going through, well, not PowerPoint, but he's showing the <laughs> <laughs> the the different uh, images, like what is worse, and then you're seeing violent images from wars versus totally natural images of uh, alive individuals just naked breasts for the most part yeah exactly and and so i think that really that scene i connected with so much uh, even something as simple as uh the fourth die hard film i remember it was pg-13 but there's still a scene where john mclean like shoves a guy into a giant fan and he gets chopped up and apparently that's okay in a pg-13 film no problem i don't know it was very uh frustrating for me uh, to to see all of these different examples and thrilling to see that Milos Forman had the foresight to be like, let's have this specific scene in this film because I think he makes an excellent point. 
Well, also playing into with that particular scene, the hucksterism of the character, where I think it's Larry's brother. It's like, you know, it was nice of the, I don't know, the, the, the people's group for like a free press or something through this, you know, party for you and allowed you to be the main speaker. And he's like, I am the people's <laughs> free press or whatever. That's me. I paid for all of this just as a platform for me to, to speak, which is, you know, it's two podcasters. We both like, you know, let, let's, it's more time for me to do the talking and you do the listening. That's <laughs> we, Webb and I occasionally can shout someone out on Twitter, but for the most part, these conversations are sealed off. <laughs> like you, you listen. You don't talk back to us on Trilogy <laughs> Theory. You mean with the ding-dong and the hoo-ha? Yeah, plenty. Oh, you're making me happy. Oh, yes! Yes, you are a magical being. Oh, you're getting me excited. That's not supposed to happen. Now open those legs for me. Wider. Wider! Whoa, not that wide, kid. Fuck yeah, that wide. That part of his body has more personality than his whole face. Well, Gary, we can already see his bing-bong and his flabby-habby-babby. I'm not talking about his cock and his ass, you imbecile. I want that. The taint. It's beautiful. That's what people want. Gary Flank didn't get where he is by sticking to convention. I always knew he'd make something out of himself. Because he thinks different. He didn't care about the wing dig or the... <whistles> Nobody was showing what was in between. That's why he started Taint Magazine. Other people must have liked it too, because it sold by the hundreds. Pretty soon there were plenty of imitators flooding the market, but Gary kept ahead of the ball. <laughs> Pretty soon Gary had it all. Money, fame, and money. Plus, he was also famous. Hey, this is it. Welcome to Tate Mansion. This is where it all happens. How you doing, sweetheart? Want any aspirin? Want to make a phone call? Can if you want. Hey, hey, hey all right. Have some more ice. <laughs> yeah, these are the days, people. These are.